0: You can turn to Psalm 100, if you have the Pew Bibles, that is on page 500 and 501. Title of the message this morning is, Not Just Some Pie in the Sky Jingle. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. What's missing in this psalm? You might be squirming in your seat and thinking, Thought that, I thought I dropped something. You're good. You're good. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. thought the T-Rex was coming for me. <laughs> you might be squirming in your seat, and I might be squirming up here saying, you might be saying, Pastor, are you suggesting that God's word is missing something? What do you mean what's missing from Psalm 100? Or are you suggesting that the psalmist got something wrong here? Well, no, if you know me. That's not at all what I'm suggesting. Of course not. But maybe a better question is, what seems like it's missing from Psalm 100? Or what seems different in Psalm 100 than in the Psalms that came before it? To answer that question, we need to consider where we're at in the Psalms here. We need to consider the immediate context of Psalm 100 in the collection of 150 Psalms. It's in Book 4. Remember, the psalms are broken up into five different books. It's in Book 4, which is Psalm 90 through Psalm 106. And within that book, within Book 4, many scholars emphasize the thematic connection from between Psalm 92 and Psalm 100, or Psalm 93 and Psalm 100, depending on who you read. But last week, we uh, mentioned the book from Dr. Futado whose book, Interpreting the Psalms, we've used kind of to help get our categories for this summer of the Psalms. And here's what he says. He says, Psalms 93 to 100 are arguably the theological heart of the book of Psalms with their sustained emphasis on God's kingship. Now that's a pretty bold claim. And as we saw last week in Psalm 2 with the introduction of the Lord's anointed, the Messiah and King, the very Son of God, This is a massive theme throughout the Psalms, this idea of God's kingship. So to say that these eight or nine Psalms are the theological heart of the entire book of Psalms because they focus on God's kingship, that's very important. So again, let's come back to my question. What is missing here from Psalm 100? Or what's different in Psalm 100 than what we saw in Psalms 93 to 99? Those psalms, Psalms 93 to 99, contain some very specific language about the Lord being the king over all the earth, of him being the one who reigns as the exalted one seated on his throne. And we don't see that language explicitly used in Psalm 100. But there's another significant thing that is not present in Psalm 100. And again, I would encourage you maybe go back later this afternoon and and, read through this whole section 92 to 100. Listen to some of the words that are used in those Psalms injustice, iniquity, wickedness, people who go astray, worthless idols, wrath. And then these are some of the ways it refers to God judge, avenger of wrongdoings, God of vengeance. Hello, right? And then we get to Psalm 100, and like, there's none of that. So, what's going on here in Psalm 100? If this is the capstone to this great collection that is the theological heart of the book, why does it seem to take a different turn? Kind of feels out of place in a way, right? Well, this is why the discussion of genre or categories is so important. Dr. Futato and and other Old Testament scholars categorize Psalm 100 as a hymn. And here's what he says. Listen closely. Hymns were composed for times when all is well. They are songs for those trouble-free times of life, times when our lives are well-ordered, well-oriented. The hymns typically celebrate God as creator and redeemer. And Psalm 100 definitely fits this description. It seems to describe a time when all is well with the world and we might be tempted to read psalm 100 and say, "Oh, come on, God, this is so unrealistic, right? Especially in light of the current state of affairs in our world. Like, really? This is all you got, right? We might approach it with that cynical mindset of like, no, it's this isn't how it is." So the question is, how should we approach psalm 100? as Christians who believe that God's word is true, that it's unchanging, that it's without error, and that it is relevant for our lives today in 2020, that it speaks to us in all that we experience in the broken world around us, how should we approach it? Last week, we asked a couple important questions. We'll be asking these questions throughout the Psalms. First, why do we need the Psalms, right? We asked that, why do we need the Psalms in general? And why do we need the Psalms right now in our current moment? In light of those questions and in light of the answers that we as Christians and the world around us is seeking right now in terms of injustice and racism and deadly viruses and economic stability and political turmoil, etc., etc., an honest question is... Isn't Psalm 100 just some pie in the sky jingle? And that's an honest question, right? That's an honest question when we look at the world around us. Is this really what we need right now? Is this what the world around us needs right now? And my answer is a resounding and an emphatic yes. Yes. It is a resounding and an emphatic yes as it relates to the other categories of psalms, especially the psalms of lament, which we're going to be seeing in a couple weeks. We cannot lament properly if we cannot praise God and give him thanks properly. We cannot lament properly if we cannot praise God and give him thanks properly. We need to start with what we got here, okay? Okay? And while this may be a season right now in the world around us, maybe in our own lives for intentional and purposeful lament for a whole number of reasons, we cannot divorce that lament from the truth of how things should be and how we are promised that they will be one day. The glorious truths here of Psalm 100 must be read they must be meditated upon, they must be sung, and they must be clung to tightly with a proper view of their place in redemptive history. Let me give you an example of, of what this looks like, maybe in conversation. Uh, on Wednesday night, I was on a, a Zoom or a FaceTime call, FaceTime call with my best friend Joey in, in China. He was, uh, we served on the same team together. And we were talking about just things that are going on in the world, situation in China, situation in America. Uh, Joey is first-generation American-born Chinese. Uh, So he grew up here and then moved to China. I'm a white guy from Wisconsin, moved to China, right? Lived as a foreigner, lived as an ethnic minority in, in China. And we had a lot of discussions about race. We had a lot of discussions about ethnocentrism and working with house church leaders in China and wrestling through some of these issues and then coming back to America where the situation is is different in a lot of ways, but still really at the heart of it. Uh, It's a lot of the same issues, right? And we talked about this, that the gospel is the only answer to these problems, right? The gospel is the only answer to all of the issues that are going on in the world. And it's always the only answer. And the call is that Christians will always run to Christ, that we will always pray and trust and rest and and hope and believe because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. But that's not that we say we just kind of lob these things out there as some cliche things, right? Like, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and poof, there goes, you know, injustice. And poof, there goes—like, no, it doesn't work that way, right? We don't, just, we don't just say, like, oh, the gospel's the answer, and then walk away. Like, as if it's some, like, magic pill or some formula that if you just plug in the right things, like, your life is, is perfect. The gospel does address— life in a fallen world. And Psalm 100 is not something you just put on a coffee mug and you go sit on your porch and you, you sip your drink and say, hey, everything's good, right? And I'm just going to ignore what's going on around me. We don't just say that all is right with the world when it's clearly not. And I think a helpful way to, again, to think about this is how we approached the Psalms last summer. We looked at creation, fall. So creation, right? Everything's good. And then the fall fall happens, and our world is, is plunged into sin and darkness, right? Creation, fall, and it's this framework of all of Scripture, right? It's this arc of redemptive history, creation, fall, and then redemption and consummation, and things get back to the way they were created to be at consummation. Psalm 100, really, it hits those high points, right? It hits these points of creation. We see that God is our creator. We're going to see that in a minute. And then it kind of gives us this picture of how things are going to be forever, how, what, it's, what it's like to be with God forever. So Psalm 100 hits those high points of creation and consummation. Now, this isn't to say that it ignores the realities of, the, of fall and the need for redemption. Um, it's just that it, in this context, that's not the goal here. That's not what the psalmist is trying to do. Uh, We're meant to see how things were supposed to be and how they one day will be. So let's dive in a little bit here to Psalm 100 as we come back to this, and and we will come back to this idea of why we need the Psalms and why we need them now. Just a a brief kind of history note uh, on uh, Psalm 100. It is one of the most familiar Psalms in the entire Psalter, if you just, you know, flip open and, and read through the Psalms, like Psalm 100 is one of those Psalms that you're like, oh yeah, I've, read th- or I've heard this or read this a bunch of times. You know, there's some Psalms that I read and I'm like, what? Like, I don't feel like I've read this before. But Psalm 100 is so familiar, right? It's such a familiar Psalm. Uh, it was actually written by a man named William Keith, who was a Scotsman. He was exiled in Geneva, Switzerland, along with John Knox. Uh, they were contemporaries of John Calvin, who ministered in Geneva and oversaw the compiling of the Geneva Psalter. Uh, which in the 1551 edition of the Geneva Psalter included Psalm 100, William Keith's uh, version. It's commonly called the Old Hundredth, and uh, it's also known sometimes by uh, the title, which comes from the first line, which we sang, All people that on earth do dwell. And there was a um, great emphasis there in Geneva on the congregational singing of the Psalms. Uh, It's a huge part of the Reformation. It's a huge part of our Presbyterian heritage. So Psalm 100 uh, really has has a long and strong history uh, in the Protestant church. Well, speaking of uh, the text itself, Calvin in his commentary on the Psalms says, its brevity renders a lengthened discourse unnecessary. And if one of the mightiest pens in the last 500 years had little ink to spill on Psalm 100, uh, we should take notes. Now that's not to say that its contents are unimportant, but rather that it is short and also qu- quite straightforward, right? There's not really a lot of like, you don't read this and go like, what's going on here, right? It's, it's very clear and it's very straightforward. There's five verses in Psalm 100, verses 1 and 2 parallel verse 4, and verse 3 Parallels verse five, so if you kind of see the parallel structure, it's A B A B, right? A, one and two line up with, with four, three lines up with five, and uh, we're going to just look at, at that structure a little bit, and then we'll dig into the sp- some of the specific details. So verses one and two, and f- verses one and two parallel verse four. Okay, they each have three imperatives or three commands in them. We see them in verses 1 and 2 at the beginning of each line. Make, serve, and come. These are commands that are given to us as we are to, to worship God. Verse 4 is enter. Now it's actually the same Hebrew word as the word in verse 2, to come. Okay, So make, serve, come, and then enter. Um, also in verse 4, give thanks and bless. So there are six commands. Um, Imperatives or six commands used there, in those parallel verses. Verse 3 then also begins with an imperative, to know. Uh, but then it is followed with a description of who God is and who we are in relation to him, which is paralleled in verse 5 with the reason why we are to do all these things, pointing us ultimately to the unchanging character of our God. So again, on the surface of it, it's pretty straightforward, right? You can kind of see how those, how those things line up. It doesn't, you know, again, it doesn't take like a PhD in Biblical Hebrew to figure that out. Uh, it's pretty clear in our English translation. But let's, let's dig in a little bit, right? I mean, we see the structure, but let's dig in a little bit and see some of these details. Now remember, I said that we don't explicitly see the language of God as king used in Psalm 100. There's no uh, throne, there's no uh, seated, there's no majesty and all these words that, are, that kings specifically use. Uh, but if we look a little more closely, we'll see that the connections are there. And we'll see how this is a proper capstone to those psalms that deal with God as king. So Psalm begins with a command, which in the Hebrew is just a single word. Uh, we could just, if you wanted to have one word, probably the best word would be shout, okay? Shout, shout to the Lord. Uh, the ESV has rendered that make a joyful noise, okay? The NASB says shout joyfully, and the CSB, the Christian, Christian Standard Bible, says shout triumphantly, which I think is probably the best rendering uh, probably gets the closest to the meaning. The same word is used to refer to a trumpet blast that signaled the start of a battle. So there's some, there's some like war imagery, some battle imagery going on in this word. It's also the response in a, in a shout of triumph that would have been given for a king and his army returning to the city after a victory. Okay? There would have been this, this shout of triumph as the king returns. But then notice to whom this command is given. It's not a specific command given only to the people of Israel. It's a broad sweeping command given to all the earth, right? Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. It doesn't just say, make a joyful noise to the Lord, you people of Israel who God rescued out of Egypt, and you have this specific redemption story to tell, Everyone needs to make a joyful noise to the Lord. Everyone needs to shout to the victorious king. Again, that's brought out in the song that we sang, right? The Old Hundredth. All people that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. And if you go read Psalm 93 to 99, you'll actually see both of these emphases how God reigns particularly, and how he has dealt particularly with the people of Israel as his chosen people, but how he also sits enthroned in majesty as king over all the earth, right? There's these dual elements. There's this specific element of how Israel belongs to him as his people, but how all the world belongs to him, and all the world is called to come and bow down before him. So there is a strong missionary impulse in this call. It is to declare, it's for the people of God to declare to all the nations that there is one king, there is one God, there is one maker to whom all must come and bow down. And one of the things that I've been having a lot of conversations with, with friends about this, one of the thing that, things that grieves me right now in our current national conversation is that there is almost no acknowledgement of who God is. There's almost no acknowledgement of what part he has to play in all of this, or how we ought to respond to him in light of everything that's going on. I don't see any God-centered solutions being proposed. I see a lot of man-centered solutions being proposed. And I want to say, how's that been working out for us? Right? Right? I mean, it's not. And until we can get back to the source, until we can say, we're all a bunch of broken sinners and we need to come together as just humanity under the maker of all things to whom we all belong and start to have some conversations, we're not going to get anywhere. We see this call, then what, what does this look like? Right? We, I know a lot of us have been asking, like, what can we do? Right? What can we do? We see here, this is, I mean, again, this maybe just sounds pie in the sky, but this has to be the starting point, right? This has to be the starting point of of how we begin to to see change in our world. These next two imperatives in verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. This word serve here means to, to work or to minister or to worship. And then we're told how to do it. We're told to do it with gladness this isn't some like, oh, oh, I gotta go to church again. I gotta go worship God again. Oh, I'd rather be, you know, mowing my yard or out fishing or whatever. No, come, come before the Lord with gladness. Serve Him, worship Him with gladness. And we see that mirrored then in the second part of the verse. Come into His presence. This in the Hebrew here, literally, it says, come before His face right? Come before the face of the Lord. How? With singing, or with cheer, or with joyful songs. This is not a call for some emotionless robotic response. Like, I'm just going to uh, go to this liturgical church, and they just stand up, and they sit down, and they read the same thing over and over. I mean, if that's what we're doing, let's pack it up and go home, right? And that's not what it's about. It's not about just going through the motions, it's about coming joyfully. Now we're Presbyterians, right? Like raising our hands might not be, you know, we're not like dancing in the aisles, right? But we can still worship with joy. We can still raise our voices. We can still have joy in our hearts, and we can. It's okay to move around a little bit, right? And express that we should. That should be a proper response. And ultimately, our again, our hearts ought to be stirred. Do we think about this as we come to worship? Like. Do we really think, when I'm coming here on Sunday morning, I'm coming before the face of the king of kings? And that's what we're doing, right? We're coming before God. We're coming before his face. We're coming into the throne room, and we're praising him. And that's incredible. It's not just some thing we do. It's not some tradition. So we're told what to do, told what to do in verses 1 and 2 then in the first part of verse 3, it says, know that the Lord, he is God. So just as our worship is not to be emotionless, it's also not to be mindless, right? We are to know God with our minds. And that implies that knowing implies a relationship, knowing who he is. He knows us, we know him. And that's described here in the second part of verse 3. It is he who made us. And we are his. We are not our own. And it says that we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Now, here is where we need to make a distinction between how these truths apply generally, right, to all the world, and how they apply specifically to those whom God has called out of the world. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, these things do apply to you differently then they apply to the rest of the world. We could walk into a room full of people who do not know the Lord and who maybe actively reject his role as creator and king of all the earth. And we could read Psalm 100, and these, these truths of Psalm 100 would still apply to them, right? They did not make themselves. They belong to him. They owe him their lives, and they owe him their allegiance as their creator. But until they bow their knee to the king, until they kiss the son, as we saw last week in Psalm 2, as they pay, until they pay homage to him, then they are not recipients of these promises, okay? There is those who are in and those who are out. Again, that's not us, ours to determine. That is God's to determine, but there is a clear distinction there. And let's look at a few places in the New Testament to support this claim. You don't have to turn there. You can jot these down if you're taking notes. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, and 1 Corinthians 7, 23, Paul tells Christians that they were bought with a price. Okay? You are not your own, he says. You were bought with a price. In Revelation 5, 9, and 10, we have that beautiful picture of worship in the throne room of God where John sees Jesus, the Lamb, standing as if he had been slain, and the four living creatures and the 24 elders falling down before the Lamb and singing. Okay? Don't miss the parallels here. What are they singing? Worthy are you, Jesus, the Lamb who is slain and who is standing victorious. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Okay? We are his. We are not our own. He has ransomed people for God. From where? Every tribe and language and people and nation. And has done what? We saw it in 1 Peter 2. Made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The Lamb of God is also the great shepherd of God's people. The sacrificial lamb is the great high priest and the king who has made us a kingdom and priest to God. And it is through him and with him that we will reign on the earth. He has ransomed us, he has bought us with his blood, and we belong to him. We are a people called out from roaming in the pastures of this world to be safely brought in to the pastures of the Good Shepherd. Look with me now at verse 4 of Psalm 100. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Notice here this language of gates and courts. We are to enter in. We are to give thanks and to bless his name. This is temple imagery. This is kingdom imagery here. And from the glories of the king's palace all the way down to the dirty and dusty sheep pastures, we are called to enter in. What did Jesus say in John 10? about he himself being the door of the sheep and the good shepherd of the sheep. Listen to this from John 10, starting in verse 7. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Right? Psalm 100. Know that the Lord is God. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. The Lamb of God, who lays down his life for his sheep, who guards, who protects, who knows them, he is the one who made us and continues to sustain us. The very God that Psalm 100 verse 5 speaks of. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. He is the one who is good, whose steadfast love endures forever, whose faithfulness to all generations these two words steadfast love and faithfulness are used together 39 times in the old testament 30 times they speak specifically about the lord 25 times they're used in the psalms so if you if you've read through the psalms uh, even you know just over a not super long period of time probably you start to see a pattern here, right? Steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness. These words jump out at us. And if you go back a little bit earlier on in Scripture, they are a part of God's self-revelation to Moses on Mount Sinai. When God, remember, he descended in the cloud, and the Lord passed before Moses, and he proclaimed his name. What did he say? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Okay? The psalmists are not just making up adjectives here to describe the Lord, right? This is God's own self-revelation of himself. Steadfast love. His love is steadfast and he is faithful. He goes on, talking to Moses, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Again, so we see this idea of it lasting forever, lasting to generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So the God who revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, has revealed himself to us in his Son, Jesus Christ, and he has revealed himself to us through the Holy Scriptures. The Lord who reigns supreme over all the earth does not just meekly suggest that it might be good for us if we would bow down to him. No, he demands it. So how will we respond? How will we respond to this demand. Ask the questions last week, and I want you to you can go home and think about these. What, are we, what am I to do based on this, or what am I to believe based on this text, right? Head. What am I to feel? Heart. And what am I to do? Hands. What should our response be to Psalm 100? Again, while on a surface level reading, we might think that Psalm 100 sounds a little too pie in the sky. We must look carefully and see the glorious God who is behind it all. He is not a God who is distant and unengaged. He's not a king who's sitting by, chilling out in his palace, while all the people in his kingdom are just suffering and having horrible lives and striving and working for him, and he's just chilling, doing nothing. That's not what's going on. Why do we need Psalm 100? Now. Because now is the time to sing and to pray and to meditate on and to rejoice in the truths of Psalm 100. Because Psalm 100 doesn't just sweep the world and its brokenness under the rug and pretend that it's not there, it doesn't just come and throw some dirty garment over our shoulder and try to cover our guilt and shame. Instead, it points us to our creator and redeemer who has covered our guilt and shame, who has paid our ransom with the blood of his own precious son, who has clothed us in robes of majesty as we enter freely into his presence, as we come before his face to worship him and to declare to the world around us what he has done for us in the abundance of his steadfast love and faithfulness. And if you're here today and you have not yet come, if you have not yet bowed the knee before your maker and your king, today is the day. Wait no longer. And for those who have bowed the knee before the king, who have heard the shepherd's voice and who have followed him, let this song sound forth from our lips. Let us joyfully and thankfully give our God the praise that he alone deserves. Let us pray. Father, this call, these commands are not something that we can do on our own strength. This joy and gladness, this hope... This is not something we can muster up on our own strength. God, we need you. We need to be reminded of who we are, that we belong to you, that you are our creator and our redeemer. Lord, help us respond accordingly as we come into your presence, as we sing your praises, and as we go out from here to declare to the world around us who you are, and what you have done for us in Christ. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.